the subject of the evening talk <coughs> is selflessness. I've had the opportunity to come to America about twice a year since 77 in order to facilitate these um, retreats, primarily on the East Coast and more recently here on the West Coast. And one of the things which I've noticed, and certainly more in recent years, is a certain emphasis within the American society and its social structure on developing what I suppose might be put as pride in America. And one sees the frequency of expression of this by, by the political leaders, by the various powers to be. And it seems to me that in this attitude which is developing, it's one which one really has to be extraordinarily aware of. And so various events have somewhat given a boost to this kind of collective identity, this collective self of identification with one's country and all, the, and all that it stands for. And of course some of the political leaders emphasize such achievements as the <coughs> bullying of Central America and the success at all the hype in the Olympic Games and the various achievements in the Silly Valley, I mean the Silicon Valley. <laughs> and all of this, all of this tends to reinforce the whole sense of self and the self which identifies with its, with its birthplace. And it seems relatively simple and harmless enough and it goes under the general kind of label of um, being uh, patriotic but obviously patriotism borders very, very closely to, to chauvinism. And chauvinism borders very, very closely to nationalism. And we've seen what has happened in this century and previously, as the effect of nationalism. So if we're going to look at self and, and the way that self exposes itself, it's utterly necessary for us to look, too, at our relationship to our birthplace and how much identification and investment actually accompanies it. Because when one does, and when one overly identifies with that to any great, de any great degree, it tends to end up in the most miserable of human conditions. It ends up as fascism. And when I feel and feel somewhat concerned, both here in the States and, and in England as well, that there's a kind of movement going on this way, this, this direction. And hopefully the peace movement here and the alternative movement will begin to uh, address this tendency, one might say almost neurotic tendency, towards priding one's country. Recently, a few months ago that is, I had the 
Um, I had lunch with uh, this rather aging Indian philosopher who probably a number of you have heard of, um, Krishnamurti. And in the course of this conversation with him, he asked me if he asked me about my visits to uh, India. I, I go rather regularly, and what I what I thought of uh, India. And I asked him, "Well, do you really want to know?" And uh, he said, "Yes." So I I told him. And during it, he said to me, "Don't put his hand out on my hand." And he said, "Don't worry, sir." You can tell me anything. He said, I'm not an Indian, you know. (laughs) 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 And somewhere in that, I felt this, uh, together with the humor of it, a very important truth, as it were, one might say, a very important home truth, insofar as in looking at self and all its forms of identification and the real inquiry and investigation into it, it certainly includes looking very directly at the most obvious and all the implications of that in in our world. And one might say, to put it more succinctly, in that inquiry, one has no country. One really has no country. That one feels that that kind of limit, that kind of identification is too restrictive, it's too limiting, and it produces in the mind too much of a prejudice. Either a prejudice of being for, with all the flag and all that that implies, or the blind reaction against. And so inquiry and looking at the areas of identification and the and how ego constructs itself, that one is an essential for our planet. Sometimes in our looking at self, it seems our self, our ego, appears to us as a kind of burden, like a huge sack of potatoes which we have to lug around this earth, and which, if we had (laughs) just a bit of choice in it, we would quietly and quickly dump (laughs) this sack of potatoes. Sometimes we do, but it generally tends to be on somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) Who is already adequately burdened with their own. So we find ourselves in this human condition, wandering from one situation to, to another, and sometimes we become aware of, of the package which we are carrying. And so out of, out of that awareness, which is very special awareness, I would say, uh, an unusual and precious awareness, we seek to find ways to deal with our ego. And in speaking in this way, of course, I think it's I think it's rather important to clarify here that there's a certain difference between the use of the word, general use of the word ego in its Eastern form and the way that I was just using it, and perhaps in its Western uh, use, just to make it clear, or try to. 
in its eastern form, e ego is something which is a burden, something to be worked with, looked at, gone into, transcended, dissolved, explored in that way. Sometimes in the Western use of ego, there's a different use, equally as appropriate. It's that establishing of the sense of oneself. Ego meaning finding a, a sense of one's personhood in life and coming inwardly to a place of stability. And so we speak in, of way, ways and means of establishing ourselves, establishing our, our presence, our, our sense of self-worth. Both uses are certainly very, very appropriate uses. But in the course of this talk, if I may, I would like to um, use the emphasis within the Eastern approach. Ego is something to be looked at. It's those unwholesome or sometimes destructive or interfering processes of mind which one senses sometimes very intuitively are unnecessary extra, a burden to a clear, direct relationship to life. So using ego in that kind of terminology. And so as I mentioned, sometimes we feel ourselves or the burden of our, of our ego, the way that it shows and presents itself in the world, and the kind of reactions which tend to accompany it. And so we want to unload, as it were, this particular phenomena. And one of the ways which has been spoken about and has considerably been referred to and still is, is the, the idea that one has to find a particular figure, who, the guru figure, who is going to, or who is willing to um, take on the burden of somebody else's karma, to use the funny old language. And, and so one feels the difficulty of sometimes living with oneself and so one has, has been told and advised and encouraged, if not pers persuaded, to surrender to something else, to surrender one's ego, to surrender one's identity and through that surrender one gives up self and one enters in a, into a certain state of selflessness in which one becomes very receptive to the truths that the um, guru possesses. And so the whole idea and the whole concept of surrender becomes very appealing, because one feels that by doing this in some way or other for ourselves, it, it will be freeing. But obviously there is always given our mind, given the state and the condition of our mind, given life, given human existence with, with all its variety, there's also danger in such an outlook and attitude. And one of the dangers is, one might say, is when one, when one is exhorted, or one exhorts oneself to give up, to let go, to surrender to, one has to be aware and very deeply and clearly aware of who and what one is surrendering to. And it's not unusual when that occurs 
and time can pass by, and I know some of you have experienced this and the subsequent pain of it, that in surrendering to, that perhaps after a period of time one's faith in that object of devotion, that object of surrender, becomes challenged. Becomes challenged because the receiver of that doesn't live up to one's expectations, because further demands are being made, because one suspects or fears that one is being exploited, and just doubts can set in about the efficacy of such a form of relationship. And one wonders whether this whole theme and concept in life of surrendering to, particularly to another and particularly to an individual of past or present, is what the heart of finding selflessness is all about. And certainly sometimes it can seem very, very attractive and somewhat easier. But one wonders whether it leads anywhere. And I rather like a story that one of the Zen teachers told, or um, was told about one of the Zen teachers a few months ago. He had <coughs> a number of small... Um, wooden Buddhas in front of him, and he was uh, examining them. And one of the meditators, one of the students, came into his room and said to him, you know, you're here with these small wooden Buddhas, don't you know that in America there's a, a real Buddha? And so the Zen teacher, I don't like this word, Master, um, very, very much, um, the Zen teacher said to him, oh yes? And he said, yes, there's one up in um, Oregon. <laughs> so the, no names being mentioned, of course. <laughs> 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 so the Zen teacher said, there are lots of uh, Buddhas, there's no shortage of Buddhas in America, but good wooden Buddhas are hard to find. <laughs> I rather like that story. <laughs> and so sometimes we see in this uh, our relationship to life and our relationship to, to others, we, we lose something of, uh, of the element of faith in ourselves and we feel that we're weak or incapable or we don't know or we're stupid or whatever it might be. And out of, the, out of that kind of experience we start looking elsewhere for the, for the receptacle, the manifestation of truth. And it's a peculiar phenomenon in our, in our life that we have such little respect for ourselves that we so quickly and immediately run out. And one, of course, has heard all of this before, it's nothing unusual. But it's in the times when the mind and life is uncertain and the inner experience doesn't seem particularly grounded that we become very vulnerable. 
very vulnerable to the persuasions and the beliefs and the philosophies of another. And that's when faith becomes an essential element to find the balance. So we hear that very frequently, if you look outside of yourself for truth, you're looking in the wrong direction. And my God, is it true. But then there's the peculiar paradox of life, and this is a, an extraordinary paradox at life, of life. One begins to look at oneself. One begins to look at what constitutes oneself, and hopefully looking at oneself and what constitutes oneself in a way which is free as much as possible from many of the conclusions and assumptions which we may already have, the kind of theologies about life and the, and the soul and deathless and rebirth and all of, all of these ideas. Really, whether you believe in them or whether you don't is not very, very important. But so in our looking at ourselves and at the simple reality of ourselves, we become aware, as has been pointed out, the manifestations of change and the movement and that there's no eternal essence inside of ourself. And one explores that and, and as much as possible to the depth of one's being. And one might ask, well, where is the truth here in me? In other words, in looking outside of oneself may not be the answer. But looking at oneself and all that constitutes oneself, as people of practice find, and people well motivated in, in the inner work find, well, maybe this truth, this reality, this whatever one wants to call it, maybe it's not within either. Then there's a problem. <laughs> Now you're waiting for me to give some <laughs> lovely answer, aren't you? <laughs> and we're back to the old story, looking out again. So, the question comes, in this looking inwardly and looking outwardly, that mind is faced with these paradoxes of life, that to go in any direction is to go away from, it's to go towards, it's to create a gap, and in those gaps, one fills up with mind, up with everything. And perhaps in this area of self and selflessness, perhaps in our looking and our bringing greater awareness to it, it is to take it initially, at least initially, from the way from sorry, away from any kind of romantic idealism. This is one of the curses of religion. It's, it's where one creates for oneself an image. I would like to be selfless. One looks around to find certain models of people who present at least an aura of selflessness. God knows what's going on inside, but <laughs> anyway, an aura of it. And out of that perception one wishes in some way or other perhaps to model oneself to find 
in good human intention t to find a way of being less selfish and more selfless. And so one embarks, as I mentioned, on a spiritual journey going towards <coughs> selflessness and away from selfishness. Towards the lack, absence of self and away from self. Within that actual process, within that actual journey, as I mentioned, idealism can come up. The idealism of placing the image of how I want to be or how I ought to be and experiencing its opposite. And unfortunately, each time one says at the end of a sitting, may all beings be clear, may all beings be bright, may all beings live with love or compassion or, or whatever, even just the repetition of something like that sets the mind up all too easily with an ideal. So one starts comparing through that ideal. Sometimes one meets the ideal, one feels peaceful or loving, and sometimes one doesn't. There's no room for ideals in direct seeing into life. What is the significant factor in looking at the construction of self, of ego, and the withering of it away, the reducing of it, never in absolute terms. I personally have never met anyone in my life who doesn't have an ego. So there's the construction and the formation of the ego there, and there is a movement in time through diligence, through practices or whatever, towards less ego, towards selflessness. What's the characteristic, what's the characteristic feature which begins to emphasize and draw one out at the expense of t'other? Surely it has got, must have something to do with the heart, surely. Surely the heart has to be at work in this. <coughs> and surely there has to be some receptivity within ourselves of affection, of love, of some warmth inside of oneself which is free, to some degree or other, from the restrictions that our ego places around it. And the set, if you can follow, it's, I know it's a, a, long, um, a long day, that the sense of our ego, in the way that it's being used, places some kind of restriction around the heart around the feeling, the sensitive, caring, feeling quality. 
So when the ego restriction is around that, what we have an affection for tends to be that which we are identified with. It may just be oneself. What I want, what I like, what I like to do, what I like to be. One cares so much for oneself, one's ego is so structured around I and me, it counts very little about the rest of the world except how good it's for me. And it's out of balance. Not that there isn't a place for us, obviously, in our life, in relationship to ourselves, but it gets out of balance. Sometimes it extends itself a little bit further, and it includes friends, it includes the lover, it includes the parents. So the structure of the ego extends itself to within a, a larger circle than oneself, but a very small circle in reality. But it requires more selflessness. It requires a greater extension of the heart in that area. It requires a certain degree of letting go and giving up and creating space and time for another or others. And within that kind of movement which is taking, taking place, with the opening of the heart, the structure of self is such that one is working to pierce through its walls, to actually cut through, to some degree or other, the limitations which self or ego create in life. It's a small mind which identifies with a chunk of the earth and says, I love America. So in our looking, and in our looking carefully at the c where our mind and our life and our existence is defined, within, within that looking, which we experience the walls of our mind, we begin to break free. That requires a great deal of awareness in life. But it requires more than that awareness, because it requires within that awareness a great deal of the heart. One of the dangers in our contemporary world is that the heart itself, which is a key towards a greater understanding of selflessness and its application, is that feelings are becoming less and less significant, seem to be playing in our world less and less of a role. And what happens is that the brain and the, the cerebral activity 
and the process of decision-making and all the constructs of the mind don't take into account the feeling factor. So one finds oneself relating to events and situations in life because it's and making decisions out of expediency. Not doing anything out of a heartfelt concern, not concerned with the moral issues, not concerned with is love and compassion in this decision or in this action, but doing it because of some other motives. And there is a danger in the human psyche, I mean a real danger in the human psyche, that the feeling life begins to dry up. And particularly my own gender has to be very, very watchful of this and that and the kind of influence that this drying up of one's feeling life and making decisions which lack love and lack feeling, the w way that that has its impact in, a, in this world. Within this movement and, and this in exploration of our of self and, and selflessness, it's equally important within a situation as we are in here, an equally important one, to be aware of the feeling factor within what we're doing. It's not enough and it doesn't lead anywhere to be mechanically precise. It doesn't lead us anywhere to be able to sit and be like in a rotation in the form of a rotation, constantly with our breathing through the whole of a sitting and never once feel the breathing in that feeling way. And so sometimes in coming into a situation like, like the one that we are experiencing here together, it can be that our mind wants to do everything right, everything precisely, everything has, as is instructed. And that emphasis in that way certainly reflects a person's interest and, and, and willingness. But in trying to do everything precisely, the whole point might be missed. The feet can walk on the earth, my feet can walk on the earth. I can feel my foot touching the ground. And so can the military, walking precisely, step by step, one, two, one, two, one, two. What's the difference? So some quality, some factor, some element within the process of sitting and the process of, of walking makes that difference. And that difference is something coming from one's heart into what one does.
In the course of that journey, and all that is implied in that journey, very understandably at times, we rebel against it. The very fact of doing something as a collective body, being, having a kind of prescription for the day, with all the timetable that accompanies it, being asked to do this, that and the other in terms of a formula and the method and so forth through the day, can bring out of ourselves quite some reaction. And I feel in life, though others might think differently, I feel in life there is a very important and essential place for rebellion, for protest, for the participation in struggle. But either at times with oneself or with an external situation. But the question is in life, what's worth struggling with? What's worth protesting about? What's worth entering into a, a dynamic relationship with? And so sometimes within a situation like that we are having here, it's very important to understand in our relationship with each other, each time you m walk in through that door, you're making the decision. And each time one is sitting and working with oneself and, and, and engaging in that, it's something that you're doing. So that the sense in, in, in life of taking the responsibility and making the action. And if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't sit right with you, then you make a decision out of that so that we don't have, even in spite of the similarity of shared time together in sitting and walking, it's not coming from conformity. Better to rebel than conform. So that some sense in our life of, of, a, of a, a spirit of looking and observation and staying in touch with. And sometimes within that, and within a situation here, as people have expressed in the groups, sometimes in just in being here, one feels the pressure. The pressure of being in a situation with a lot of people. And when we have a situation like this, one can feel actively that kind of pressure. The pressure which disturbs of another's breathing, the, the pressure of somebody moving, the pressure of being situated so close together. And that too can produce within ourselves a reaction. And the reaction produces me, self, and them. And the division is created. And within that gap that you and I create, that within that division that we make, our mind fills up that gap with all its projections and its reactions and its fears and its anger and its paranoia. Without that gap, 
me and them. There's no place for fear in life. So sometimes we become aware of how oh, the ego is manifesting again, it's taking its form, it's taking its construction. I've created a distance. I'm experiencing a real distance. And sometimes perhaps we have to find ways to work with that. Perhaps to be aware of the space which is here with us already. It might be very simple, the space just above our heads, it's very spacey up there. It might be a, an awareness which says, we are here together. It might be some sense of solidarity of men and women sitting and, and being together. But something which takes the emphasis on off the self-construction, even if temporarily, to allow our mind a way of seeing which is not so self-centered. And, there, and therefore, more has the characteristic, even if it's only temporarily, of selfless. Because it seems to me important in life, if one cannot find total selflessness in this world, and some of us have had the privilege of moving in and through this world and around this world, and the enormous privilege of meeting a very diverse number of people. If one in one's heart of heart has not seen total selflessness, one is rather drawn anyway to the conclusion that within the scope of life and our relationship to it, there's a place for self Self meaning the sense of I, sense of me, mind, body. And a place, and an equally significant one, for selflessness. And that a balanced way of life is one which acknowledges mind, body, therefore attributing the label self, and one acknowledges it in a balanced way, meaning that it doesn't gain an exaggerated priority in one's life. And thus we work to find ways and means to find the balance between self and all that is implied in that and selflessness and what is implied in that. And in finding that balance and in the interaction of the two, love must flower. A love which feels primarily without restriction. A love which feels and expresses in life as an action which doesn't feel confining in any way. Because one has looked at the definitions that the mind has created of who and what is worth loving. And it's looked so carefully, it's seen to a large extent 
through the confinements that we place on our love. And in that, the heart is open. And when the heart is open, the whole universe opens with it. May all beings see into the limitations of ego. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings know an expansive love. Let's have three or four minute quiet period together. <laughs> 